It's like, it's one thing. It's one bill. It's a bunch of bills. There's a little bit of leadership stuff. But, okay, welcome back, everybody. We are finally getting back in person again. We're excited to do another Congress two beers in um, for you. We're going to talk a little bit about the last Congress. We're going to talk a little bit about the future. Is excited the right word? I don't know if it's the right word. I'm excited because Laura's been nice enough to share her bourbon with me, so I'm That's very excited. What kind of bourbon is that, Laura? Now, I want to make sure to thank Mark for the gift of beer knuckle bourbon after I won a uh, contest about what? Like the elevated yeah. number of voters? Yeah. yeah. The so last... It's not so much a gift as it is winnings. It's, yeah. it's winnings, yes. Yeah. They're hard-earned winnings. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Uh, yeah. We don't want to miscategorize. 2020, also, I didn't think there were going to be that many voters. I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> just, just a little bit. Just a titch. Just... But also, whenever I go to boxing, I think of Congress. What, so what are your my winnings remind me of basically what I what I do a couple of times. What did you think the turnout was going to be in twenty twenty? I don't know less. But we don't, we're not talking about twenty twenty. We're not talking about. He took the under fifty four percent or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like absolutely insane. It was insane. Yeah. So, it was sixty eight percent. I think it was actual turnout. My wife was laughing. <laughs> so you're lucky to have with us today, uh, Josh Shooter, Laura Blessing, Mac. Glassman, um, all wonderful, incredibly smart, and great colleagues to have. Um, I'm Mark Harkins, and we're going to talk to you again about Congress. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, Laura, let's talk a little bit about what's happened in the last year or so. And we can talk a little bit about what happened in the last two years, too. Um, has this been a good, uh, an active Congress or an inactive Congress? No, nothing's happened. Clearly, clearly nothing at all has happened. Uh, no, this, this, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of conventional wisdom of, of Congress as a do-nothing body that this, the past year or two have, have belied. You know, we've had major legislation, of course, we've had a unified uh, democratic governance that is particularly conducive for that. Um, and it's been a combination of both major wins, but also not as much as what the Democrats wanted, which also is pretty typical. So while we have, I don't want to summarize all of this myself in five minutes because then we uh, obviate the purpose of the next 50, but um, whether that is major uh, pandemic legislation, budgetary uh, uh, wins, um, et cetera, uh, the Democrats have gotten a lot, but they've fallen short of you know major proposals like you know a permanent extension of CDC provisions, the child tax credit, for example. Um, right, that's that's came really close right now. I mean, it, it, some of this was bipartisan, some of it wasn't. Um, well, that's one of the things that I think is interesting is that you know you had a really really small majority, and so I think a lot of people were expecting just out and out gridlock um, and nothing getting done at all. Um, Parties aren't able to function because Democrats are divided between progressives and moderates. Like, they have a majority of four or five seats in the House. They have none in the Senate. They literally have just a tie-breaking vote. And so I think a lot of people were kind of expecting Congress to do a lot of nothing, right? A lot of bickering, um, not much accomplishment. And the fact is that, like, there have been a couple big partisan bills. You have the American Rescue Plan and you have the, uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation whatsoever. Nope. But the fact that Wallace. Joe Manchin wanted to call inflation reductions about it. But you had those two things. The rest of it was bipartisan, right? I mean, the PVP extensions, the NDAAs, the uh, Juneteenth, the, the gun control bill, chips. Also, I mean, there's the big one, right? What's that? Postal reform. Postal reform. That's a huge deal. That's one thing, like, I can't. Well, it's a and, major, and major the deal. Infrastructure bill last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. But people who say this Congress, like, people who want to say Congress isn't productive are angry because Congress didn't do what they wanted it yes. to do, right? But this Congress did a ton, and to say it didn't is just be pissy about not doing what you wanted to do. Well, right? I mean, you just have to be more specific with your metrics. I mean, if, if, if what you care about is immigration, for example, then you might be upset about that. And Congress uh, hasn't done anything to say what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we also, got, Congress got a little more engaged in foreign affairs and having to deal with what was going on. Lindley? In Ukraine, that's another huge yeah. Yeah, a lot of I mean, Ukraine aid. And the Ukraine aid is, is the one that really has sort of a bipartisan component to it, in my mind, that was surprising. You can say things like, oh, the gum bill was bipartisan, but really the gum bill is like this centrist compromise that attracts some Republicans. The Ukraine stuff is basically both parties backing the administration, essentially. And that was something I didn't necessarily believe was possible right now. Although that's starting to fade away. Yeah. House Republicans are pulling away from Senate Republicans, although, you know... It, they're not really 
if they pass an omnibus, which, which people expect, uh, you know, their support isn't needed. So they can say whatever the heck they want to say about Ukraine funding in the omnibus. Um, but yeah, that's starting to change. <laughs> because in three weeks, that's going to change. So let's go back to the very beginning of this conference. I mean, people forget. We had January 6th, right? As, we, as we're uh, taping this, we're about an hour before um, the final meeting of the January 6th committee, and they're going to vote to release their report. They're going to vote to do criminal charges against Donald Trump. I mean, this is this Congress did not start on the best foot. Yeah. No, I mean, that's always been my thing with this Congress. You can talk about all the legislation you want, but 100 years from now, the history books are going to say two things about this Congress. There's an insurrection of the Capitol, more importantly, the President of the United States was impeached in this Congress. It doesn't feel like it because it happened before Biden took office, um, but that was this Congress. And so, like, the focal point of this Congress is really that um, from a long perspective. Right, all the legislation will fade away and whatever, but uh, that's what people are going to remember about the 117th Congress. Um, it was not a quiet Congress in any sense. Right. Yeah. And you know, it comes full circle because the very last thing it's going to do essentially yeah. is the January 6th report, and so sort of the consequences of those opening, you know, January 6th and then the impeachment on the 13th of January are going to come full circle, right? Two years later, almost in December, and we'll see what the Consequence of yeah, that. I mostly agree with that, except for, like, depending on what happens in the future, things will become more or less salient. So if we have continued electoral problems, our ability to add the Electoral Count Act reforms into the omnibus, which is what people expect, they expect to put the Senate's version, not the House, there are some differences of interest between them, uh, will become really salient. Um, if we trash the environment like we're expected to do, the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, are going to be particularly interesting going forward. No, and it's true. Let's, let's talk a second about the, the changes in the electoral count. I mean, essentially, and I haven't read deep into this, and I don't know if somebody else has, um, essentially what I, what I understand it to mean is basically the vice president is there to, to wave and to say yes, um, and that there is some kind of forcing provision to require the states to actually certify. Is that true, or is that just me making that up? Yeah, so... Um both the House and the Senate uh, version of the bills, and the Senate one is the, expected to be the one that's included, uh, clarify that the vice president's role is, in fact, merely ceremonial, right? So this is part of the unfortunate rhetoric that got looped into the January 6th. Um, both of them require more of both chamber and not just a single member to be allowed to object, right? So the Senate wants 20% of each chamber. The House, I think it was a third of each chamber. There are some, the more salient differences are the House are like, let's make more ways to sue in federal court to go against malfeasance. So they're a little bit more aggressive um, on that kind of stuff than the Senate is, uh, but they both have, I mean, like the, the Senate's version still has some pretty significant reforms that would be a real improvement. And, and more importantly, they got more than 60 votes. Correct. I mean, that's yes. kind of what's interesting. It's a, a strongly bipartisan in an incredibly partisan atmosphere, right. talking about elections, we found bipartisan reform. And it's, it's, it's good for what it does. I mean, the bottom line is someone has to count the votes somewhere. And so if you make it harder to challenge vote tallies, then you invite people to send fraudulent tallies from the states, which then are harder to challenge in Congress. There's no way. Someone has to count the votes somewhere. Um, and if that person who ultimately assigned the power is going to do it fraudulently, you have a problem. And so the bills also try to make it so that more has to go on in the states to push through a fraudulent like, you know, if the governor disagrees with it, then, you know, the, the new slate of electors, things like that, can't be sent forward. And it all tries to do this, but the ultimate problem is that someone has to count the votes and to make the decision. And you have to empower someone to ultimately do that, right? Uh, but it does solve a lot. It certainly solves all the vice president stuff um, and that sort of, like, discretionary loophole, which is obviously nonsense. This is sort of like a, an uphill battle for people who wanted to fix this. This, is, uh, this process is something that's governed by politics more than procedures. And it's always one of those things where it's like, yes, we want to fix the Electoral Count Act. Yes, it, you want to close some of these loopholes are there. But like the type of changes that you can actually effectuate through a change in the procedures in which you count votes is always going to have giant <laughs> like loopholes in it, right? And, and again, somebody, like, somebody's going to have to count the votes. Somebody's going to have to present a, a slate of electors. Um, and there's always going to be that, that background, right? No matter what kind of changes you make. Um, so it's not like... You can completely safeguard yourself against all future things. This is a step in the right direction, but, I mean, again, the, the threat doesn't go away unless both parties are willing to abide by election results, essentially. And, and sure. I, I must say that I think the 2022 elections uh, were 
remarkable for the lack of problems. Um, basically, all major candidates, no matter how much they lost by, conceded, save one. Um, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not sure Lake will ever concede in Arizona for the governor's race. Um, and I think maybe there's one other person in Arizona, the, the Secretary of State or Attorney General didn't concede as well. But um, otherwise, we, the elections came off a lot better than folks expected. In terms of the actual process. In, in terms right. of the process. In terms of the process. Yeah. Right. And then um, they didn't actually, I mean, kind of, we've hit historically, I don't know if it's historic, but more and more we're seeing split elections and we're seeing elections not happen the way that people think going into it. Right. 2016, we kind of, was kind of, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here uh, with presidential? In, in 2018, uh, oh, wait, the Dems are picking up votes in the House, but losing votes in the Senate. That's weird. Um, which we reprised uh, in 2022, except the opposite. Republicans picked up votes in the House, and the Democrats picked up a Senate vote. Um, the country is kind of a little schizophrenic right now in its voting. Well, yes, but also those two things are related. The fact that we have extremely close elections, and then we have surprises. But those surprises are like, what's the, you know, a couple of additional points or additional seats either way, especially in polling that's narrowly divided and slightly problematic I just imagine trying to get a Gen Zer to answer their cell phone from somebody that they don't recognize. You know, good luck to pollsters. Um, you know, those those two things are related. Uh, but yeah, we also have a, a number of different exogenous shocks from, you know, very real threats to voting rights and voting um, to you know, you know, to the Dodds uh, decision. Yeah. We also we've also had elections with sort of unusual shapes to their outcomes, and 2022 is no exception to this, right? The Republicans did as well or maybe even better as the national polling predicted for sort of like national voting in the House, but it was just put in all the wrong spots. The Republicans made big gains in heavily Republican districts, and they made big gains in heavily Democratic districts, too, uh, relative to their numbers, where they got crushed were in swing districts, which obviously has a seat swing sort of effect on you in the actual House. And almost to the degree that you would have had sort of like the outcome that really would have shook things, which is move around something like a total of 8,000 votes, and the Democrats control the House. Um, and that would have been combined with the Republicans getting like, what, 52.7% of the vote nationally right. or something like that. Um, and so those sort of surprising results of, of seat swing sometimes aren't even have to do with sort of the overall strength of the party, but just the way it's distributed around the country. Uh, and right now, people talk about how that's a problem for the Democrats and the Electoral College in some ways, um, or in the Senate. Mm -hmm. But for the Republicans, this, in 2022, they got let down by the seat swing because of the distribution of their votes for the House. Um, and so these things happen, and uh, I, you know I agree with Laura that when you have very narrow margins and a very divided country, not only does like little things change stuff, but it changes dramatically in the aggregate. Right? We're talking about chamber control here over you know a handful of seats and a handful of thousands of votes in those seats, um, with a lot of sort of things on people's minds that aren't necessarily straight partisan voting, right? Like terrible Trump candidates who want to deny elections, right? Clearly cost Republicans uh, handfuls of seats. Right. Yeah, and even though there was a, you know, the amount that they got hit over, you know, both abortion and, uh, you know, some of these candidates are, you know, relatively small. They end up being incredibly consequential, right? You know, I think all of these points uh, Matt just made are really good. Uh, also, it leaves open the potential for, you know, people to read elections different ways in the way that you've read them to be very consequential for, you know, political actions party actions, different decisions going forward. You know, we're starting to see Trump start, you know, losing in polls. Um, and I, I can't imagine that without the midterm results being what they were. Um, right. You know, right. so it's a, it's, a, it's a read of, you know, different, a read of um, election results in an area where there are actually are a lot of different things going on. Well, there's, there's sort of like a which double... I think it's fair. <coughs> there's sort of like a double whammy for... Um, Republicans in, in that respect because one they didn't do as well as they expected or they anticipated in doing um, which was to be sure probably a huge disappointment given the sort of like normal midterm uh, trends that you would have um, so that's one but two like it was like a uniquely bad election for President Trump in particular right, right. the the candidates yeah. that he selected almost not a, a lot of them, a lot of them not JD Vance uh, there was a, another one that I'm forgetting somewhere out there but almost all the others lost like in, in sort of in very very electable states and this is another problem that um, the president now has to face but it was sort of like 
a double hit. So both things were happening at the same time. One, it was sort of like a mild election because of the Dobbs decision, like basically changed the enthusiasm between the two parties. And then two, you had you know some really bad candidates that were endorsed by the former president that turned out to be just absolute nightmares for the party, right? <laughs> um, the fact that they don't have the Senate right now is sort of shocking. And the Dems played in the primaries a couple places too yeah. to mess around. They did a little bit of that, but let, let's transition to what. Well, this I, I want to say one ahead. thing is that I do think there's a there's a tendency to overstate what happened or misthink about it because it's normed against expectations. Um, the key outcome of this election was that the Republicans controlled the House, um, and they you know it has all sorts of political ramifications for Trump and Trump-like candidates and for the Republican Party in general. But the key outcome, as far as the 190th Congress is concerned policy is concerned, is that now it's going to be a divided government bargaining scenario next Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Had the Democrats held on in the House, that would be sort of like the big chasm you would cross. You would have reconciliation bills and all sorts of party line legislating on people's minds, but now you don't, right? And so whether the Republicans won by the expected 32 seats or what it turned out to be, 12 seats or whatever it was, um, ultimately matters for sort of politics going forward, but as far as Congress is concerned, the basic change we expected is going to happen. So let, let's talk a little bit about that, because I want, and Josh has done a lot of, he's got the historical background on this. I mean, we've got a speaker's race that's unclear what's going to happen and whether we're actually going to, whether Republicans really do have control of the House of Representatives. I mean, have we seen this in the past? What, what, what's the likelihood of what January the 3rd, 4th, dot, 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 is going to look like? I want, I, your guess is as good as mine at this point. I have no idea what's going to happen to the Republicans, mainly because, like, it all hinges on five people and what's in their head, and Nobody knows that for sure. Um, we don't know like how firm their commitments are. I mean, they sound really, 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 really dead set against McCarthy as speaker. Um, whether you buy that or not is different, right? Um, because I think there's a, a big gap between, well, I'm really against you until like you get offered something really nice and they're like, ah, well, I'm not so so against you. I mean, like Marjorie Taylor Green, for example, right. she is not somebody you would typically think is a McCarthy backer. But she's like, yeah, I'm all behind McCarthy. He's like, why? He's like, because she's getting committee signings yeah. back, right? And she's gonna, he's, yeah. he's got some goodies to dole out. Like, yeah. hey, you want to be on oversight? Like, I can do that for you. And she's like, sign me up. So speaking about that, are they doing something very unusual in the sense that they're not naming committee chairs before the speaker vote? Yeah, it's, it's, it is odd not to have a uh, roster of committee chairs lined up. I mean, like, it's not too uncommon for it to, like, dwindle a little bit. Closer to the to the new Congress, but like it is getting a little bit weird that they have none. But they're, they're not going to they're going to be slower out of the gate than you would have expected otherwise because of that. And my God, if McCarthy or Scalise is not the speaker and someone else, they're going to be really slow out of the gate because that person's going to staff up leadership out of nowhere. Um, and but even if they even if McCarthy gets in the first ballot, they're behind schedule a little bit. I I it, I, I agree with Josh. Yet you don't know if people are bargaining or if they're dug in against you. And if they're just bargaining, then like you just in the bargain that buys them up. And that's what Pelosi did two years ago. People forget. Right. Pelosi didn't get 218 votes two years ago. She had a signed letter from the balance of power saying they weren't going to vote for her, and she just bought it up. Right? Like, that's what leaders do. Now, McCarthy is not Pelosi, and he has got a smaller group more firmly against them, and he's worse at this kind of legislative bargaining. That doesn't mean he can't overcome it. Like, I still think the most likely outcome is he buys someone up and he gets there. Right? And he gets there with the votes. Um, doesn't mean it's going to happen. No. Well, so I, I think this is like the headline for the next two years. McCarthy is not Pelosi. <laughs> um, <laughs> so well done. <laughs> um, well, that's but, pending like know, he actually, one, gets the job, and two, holds it for two that's, years. That's, right? well, so, like, actually, that's, that's, neither well, one of those two well, things are a guarantee. Well said, John. Well said. A big historical comparison difference between this goes multiple ballots and we have a fight for the speakership yeah. versus like, McCarthy buys up some people who were dead set against them because literally that happened two years ago. Well, <laughs> right, like, right, 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 right. You know, and it, it, here's the thing. Whatever the current state of affairs is, is always a snapshot. I mean, like, McCarthy, like, with the uh, initial, um, you know, GOP conference meeting in, in late November, lost the speakership by, like, 30 votes with this kind of initial, like, look at this. Um, so he's been whittling down opponents since then, and now we got these five you know, five folks who were dead set against it. And the question is, can they be bought? Or is, is this like the Batman movie where um, Michael Caine's character is just like, some men just want to see the world burn? Like, I don't, I don't know, like, I, 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 yeah. I would imagine that we probably, you know, uh, find something for these. I mean, so, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy because they, McCarthy doesn't actually need to buy them up. 
You could also buy up a handful of Democrats to vote president. Right? That's the other way to do this. I don't think that's a good political way to do this, <laughs> but it can be done all sorts of ways. Um, if you get All you need is people to not vote on the other side, too. I think that would probably cost McCarthy among Republicans, but maybe not. Um, and he doesn't need to buy all five of them up. He needs to buy one of them up. Right? And it's very, I mean, it's super tough about. to hold the coalition yeah, twine together. But, you know, if he, he ultimately he doesn't need to buy every last Republican. Well, the thing about this is what we don't know is what's in those people's heads. And what I mean by that is, are their demands real? That's that's right. step one. Like, I'm not going to vote for McCarthy. Like, I want these things. And, like, there have been, like, a slew of demands that, that they've put forward, right? That's procedural stuff. Like, um, like oh, we want committees. We want better representation on committees. Debt we ceiling. want, um, what's that? Debt we have the debt ceiling thing. We want more... Um, we want to, we want some change. approval in caucus. Right. We want we want approval in caucus. I mean, there there have been a, a handful of things, and so the question is like, are those real demands, or is it just bold, right? And it's just sort of like a placeholder for like, I actually just don't like this person, um, and that I can't read, and that's that's what we're all sort of like waiting to find out is if um, these demands are real because the demands have changed; they've gotten looser and weaker over time. Like we're we're just like, oh well, we want more vote, we want more amendments. It's like, well, you already have that. Right? You, you don't need to go to the Speaker right. to ask for more amendments. You, as a member of the House, can just decide to have more amendments, talk to four other people, and you can have more amendments. Um, that's not something that you really need to demand. Um, and, you know, the, the longer this goes, and the, 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 the more and more I begin to think that it's just they don't like McCarthy, right? Um, because the demands aren't very clear. They're constantly shifting. None of them really are aligned with any one particular idea or policy demand. And so it just kind of seems like, is this really a procedural thing where you have demands about what's going, how the house is going to operate, or is this a personnel thing? I, I, and I'm I, beginning to lean towards personnel. I think there's a third possibility, too, which is always this crew is, you know, this right wing of the Freedom Caucus is always possible, too, is that they just want to flex, right? It's, they don't want substantive procedure changes. They don't even necessarily dislike McCarthy. They're just going to do this to anyone to flex that they can do this, right? And send a shot over the bow, right? And that, that's why I think it's possible they might actually try to walk McCarthy on the floor and actually go through with it, right? Just to get a scalp and tell the next person, look what we are crazy enough to do this, right? Even though we don't really have any substantive or procedural demands for us. And it's good to show off to their constituents, right? And their media constituents that they play to. I, I don't necessarily think they need any sort of substantive goal, even like get rid of McCarthy, yeah. right? Uh, to me, the big question is if they do go through with this, then the McCarthy forces block Scalise and then just throw the whole thing wide open. Right. Uh, because if they see Scalise's fingerprints on this, they might not be in the mood to sort of all collectively support him. I do think that the five we're holding out would settle for Scalise. I, I absolutely do. But the question is whether that brings along the other 200 and right. 50, you know, other 212 or 213 Republicans you're going to need to get Scalise over the top. And the Republicans just, no, I'm not doing it, right? You blocked our guy, I'm blocking your guy. And then, then who the hell knows comes out of the closet at that point. So the last time the Republicans went through this, similar players, right? McCarthy goes into lunch and five or ten minutes beforehand says, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to be able to replace Boehner, never mind. And then there was a free-for-all. Yeah. Um, and then there was the begging of Paul Ryan. Um, See, which, yeah, all that no happened... Paul Ryan right now. All no that Ryan. happened before the caucus, though. Like, I don't think... Well, that's because Boehner said, I'm going to stay. Right, but they didn't even have a caucus, though. Like, McCarthy's the nominee of the party right now. I think it would be... Fair point. I think it would be wild if he were to drop out now and give these people just on potentially a bluff the ability to bring someone down who's the nominee of the party before they even go to the floor. I think McCarthy has to try and go to the floor. And that's why I think you see this sort of wild politics right now where everyone's trying to convince everyone else that it's a done deal. So McCarthy is just unloading this list of his supporters, you know, right. going out in public 50, 60 people saying, it's McCarthy, he's got it, we don't need these five whiners. And this is everyone from like Don Bacon to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like it's an enormous coalition. And then the five people who are holding out are saying, well, we really got 20 people, and he has no chance on the floor ever. And everyone is trying to make it a done deal now. I think, you know, if McCarthy would be in very, very much trouble if those five people could get another 10 people to come out and say they're against him. But I don't think that's going to happen right now, because I don't think they are really is a very small coalition against him right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a good read. I don't think it's a freedom... Uh, caucus flex qua freedom caucus because you've had significant divisions within them in terms of the speaker's race, you know, for some time. Um, you know, so it's not them banding together and saying we're important. It's a handful of folks who are left saying, 
you know, we want to be treated seriously as negotiators into the Congress that we're going into, where you're going to have razor-thin margins, you have me to contend with. I do think that notably there are a couple of their demands where it's possible to give them some of what they want. So they want 72 hours before a, a bill is, the final text if it's introduced, before it goes to a four vote. That's, that's the sort of thing that you can divide, and you can do a divide the dollar game. You know, there are some things where, like, you just can't, and you're like, oh, gosh, that's not reasonable. This is a messaging exercise. But you want to give them a little bit of extra time to read bills? Right. Like, go for it, and then be like, oh, gosh, you're right. We should open, open the House up to more voices. The, the BS speech that every single speaker of the House says <laughs> when they say that we're going to open it up to right. more amendments, and we're going to have a more open House, and it's regardless of party, and, you know, just like the regularity of the seasons. To be fair, Nancy Pelosi you know. never actually said that. Everybody's like, oh, we're going to open up. Nancy's like, nah, that's what yeah, they're saying. To be fair, they put an open rule, appropriations bill on the floor in 2011, I think one time. Oh, yeah. The yeah. first one. <laughs> it was, they didn't start shutting those they down until 2016. I think it was transportation. Fast. I think literally open rule with the beginning. I mean, that, yeah, God yeah. bless them, because who the hell wants to yeah, do with that? Yeah. Yeah. that died. All right, so, so we know that the House is a mess, and we also, I mean, on average, we lose five to ten members a year. I mean, or a Congress of the members, too, and it's only a five-seat majority, so this could get a little interesting that way. It's been a long time Here's since we've had that. we've really, lost uh, one now, and it was a Democrat, so. Right, right. I mean, one of the things that is interesting, this is how a bunch of my friends are talking about this, like, oh, it could flip. I'm like, the idea that, like, five swing district Republicans would all go down in, like, a single guy. Right, that's, that's, you're starting just to wish for know, the, so you know, the hope and a prayer. Like, something weird's going on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, this, this looks right. a little more, Bacon turns more than coincidental. What's going on here? Yeah, all of a sudden, Nancy Mason and Don Bacon are missing. It's like, what's going on with that? It's like, yeah, this is bad. I mean, um, it's a, it's a, I'm glad you brought it up, Mark, because, like, I actually, I don't think it's a crazy thing to talk about. Like, I think... It's crazy. You know? No, I, I don't it's think it is. Crazy. Like, having the House, like, like, you know, having, like, 100% of House membership, you know, be, be president and accounted for is actually pretty unusual. Yeah. I, I think that's the harder part, is that you got to ensure what's there for the votes. Right. Well, but, like... That's why getting rid of proxy voting is going to be a hold. <laughs> it's right. No, be but, a but that's part of it. But, like, look, I, I'm not saying that we're going to go back to, like, 1930, where, like, 14... Republicans like die, and then like a whole bunch of Democrats like win their special elections, and you flip control to the other party. Uh, that being said, like the margins are so narrow that I think like actually getting people to vote on the House floor is, is the more significant thing, as you pointed out. But you know, like having like a bad egg salad sandwich thing, I think this is Mark's favorite phrase, which is why I'm borrowing it. Um, I don't personally eat a lot of egg salad sandwiches, but. You know, like that, that's a non-zero chance that that happens. I, I don't think it's the, low. I don't think the fundamental control is the likely thing. I think the likely thing is that you have to change your policy agenda now. Right. Right. Like right. with this majority, I don't think you're going to be able to impeach, right, cabinet officials on a whim like some people are talking about. I don't think you're going to be able to build a select committee to investigate the select committee on January sixth. Mm. Like these sort of things that were very sort of right-wing mainstream ideas going into election season. Now have to contend the fact that you're going to need essentially every Republican in the House to vote yes on it. I still think you're going to get it for some of that more uh, out there oversight type stuff. Um, I think that's all going to be shoved into the committee system. At this right. Point. I mean, the, the oversight that you're going to see, I believe, and this for a lot of our listeners that this may mean something, is Afghanistan withdrawal. I mean, I think you're yeah. going to see oversight of that, and I think it's going to be pretty major, and I think it's going to be bipartisan. Broadly okay. bipartisan, I mean, and a good thing to do. Let's, let's not forget that Jim Jordan will be the chair of oversight and reform. No, judiciary. Oh, oh sorry, judiciary. Um, and he's going to have, I mean, he's going to bring the DHS secretary down in the like, all the time, like, every other day. Like, it's still going to be, like, significant. Like, you can't, you're not going to have these select committees, maybe, necessarily. That's right. totally true, but, I mean, the, the oversight... Will be the really important comer, right? Comer is that or gender? Comers and and the Democrats decided to not follow seniority in naming their ranking member for this committee. This was a somewhat unusual steering policy. Jumped two people to reach down to Jamie Raskin um, to be the top Democrat over Jerry Connolly from Virginia. And I'm trying to remember who the longest-serving member is. Who never seemed? Oh, it's um the dude from Massachusetts, the innocuous caucus. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Lynch. 
Stephen Lynch? Lynch. Yeah. It's Lynch. Lynch, Lynch is the longest serving member of the committee. Yeah. Um, but he's being reached out. So the Democrats are obviously figuring out that this is going to be a major committee with a lot of press, and so they've taken their star to be there. What will be fascinating to me is, I mean, Raskin's, I believe, on seven committees this year. <laughs> Swear to God. <laughs> um, and so let's just say for a moment that maybe he's got a little ADHD going, but... Is he going to be able to actually run a staff? That's going to be fascinating. And right now, the Republicans... So one of the things I want to go to real quick, and then I want to go to the Senate, um, is that the fact that the Republicans don't have the chairs figured out ahead of time means that they can't hire staff. Because it's not as if they're inheriting the majority. They're actually having to create right, the double their staff. Yeah. And so not only are they going to double it, but they've got to figure out who's going to be there. Right. And... You know, you've got people like Kay Granger right now who's about to become the chair of the Appropriations Committee who's not even playing, and we're not even going to get into this much, she's not even playing in the omnibus negotiations because the House Republicans are like, we don't care what you do, we're against. And so for her to become chair, she's got to stay out of it. Now think about it for a minute. Many staffers on the Appropriations Committee make the switch from one party to the other because this is tough stuff, and they know it. If they're helping to negotiate the deals right now, Granger's probably not going to pick them up. Appropriations is going to start in a hell of a hole, I believe, next year. Well, just a little bit of context for what uh, Mark uh, just discussed. So for uh, you know, House uh, committee staff, it's a one-third minority versus two-thirds majority split, uh, which has been, it's been that way since Gingrich, and this makes it a lot different from the Senate where those numbers are a lot closer. And so, so the differences that he's pointing out are, in fact, significant. A little bit of context. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, to double your committee back. Yeah. Right. Well, this was one of the things that happened when Democrats took over in the 116th, 116th Congress. Um, they were really, really slow uh, to come out of the gate uh, because they were, I mean, for the first three months, four months, like, they just, committees weren't doing much. There wasn't much legislation coming out. Um, because of the Trump administration. Right, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's kind of expecting Democrats to come in, like, hit the Trump administration hard. It's been two years. They finally have power, right? They get the tax and all this stuff. But they couldn't do anything. They didn't yeah. have any staff to do anything because um, they had just re, re, uh, re-won the majority and didn't have anybody in place. Um, so it's going to be a lot slower than I think many people anticipate. Um, that said, what it does mean is that a lot of sort of like policy-making committees are not going to be the most attractive. Um, one of the things that you're hearing now a lot is that oversight is among the more popular uh, of the committee assignments or, or committee spots, which is just sort of like bananas. To right. Me, right. It's like sort of like the, sh- the show, like literally a show. The theater of it is where all the action it makes, is. It makes sense in a partisan age, though, totally. right? Legislation's not going to be passing. If it does, it's going to be compromise legislation. You're not going to get personal credit for it. You don't want personal credit for compromise legislation right. in a lot of situations. What can you do? You can send them scream at OGR. Like, it makes sense. I mean, I get it. Yeah. Um, it's bizarre. I agree with right. you. Because you, you can bring zero home to your constituents. Right. right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Unless your name's Jerry Conley, in which case right. you are not, you're not the right member of the committee. And you're Jamie Raskin. Right. Right. Hoyer. Right. 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 Yeah. A lot of people I know are right. in and around D.C. who might yeah. like it. But. All right. we're, we're very house-focused. Let, let's take a couple minutes. It's because it's the, the cooler one of the changes. Yeah, whatever. The Senate's but, stupid. <laughs> but the Senate has a major change, right? 50 to 51 turns out to be a really big deal. Why is that? I don't, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. I, it's it's like, it's, everybody's I like, it's just a huge deal. It's not a huge deal. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not nothing, it's but not, it's not like, it's not a huge deal. It saves a hell of a lot of time. If, if somebody what walked up to you and said, like, this is a huge deal, you should say, absolutely not, and walk away. Right. Turn away. Don't what, even what, engage what, in what conversation. Time does it, I mean, I understand it, like, the motions to, the, the motions to discharge. You yeah. say half the time. You Who can now have if you're trying to nominate judges, judges you're trying to put judges, people into judges. the administration now. This is also this is built a situation but, where the minority right. is can, is is not doing everything they can to obstruct you. If they want to make it take as much or longer time than they go back to it. I, I I think it makes some difference. Like I think it's easier to get like subpoenas in the committee system when you have because yeah, you can actually have locked up things. and stuff, and they, they can't do their sort of can't do the disappearing quorum in the committees and stuff like that. But I don't. Harris doesn't have to be over here every. Day breaking ties, but I think it's. I mean, it saves some time. I don't think output wise, it's it's helps with judges a lot. It doesn't. It's like the the thing is. Well, yes, it does. Let's let's just get this out of the way. It helps with judges, sure. But like, let's talk about the number of judges that are passing the Senate on a strict party line vote. It's really not that many. There have been a handful, and of of the couple of them that happened, one of them there have only been a couple that have been actually blocked. 
um, by this kind of opposition. It's just like these lower level judgeships don't rise to the level of like intense partisan thing. Now, I'm not saying they can't, they can't start, but it's just not that many out of the whole big lump sum. It does save a little time. You don't have to go through like a legislative day and wait for like the discharge petition. And then there's like a four hour thing. Yeah. And like, and so it saves like a little bit of that. But I mean, like in the grand scheme of things, what you're looking at is really like a marginal change, which is about, which is about right. When you go from 50 to 51, you're talking about a marginal change in the number of seats. You're talking about some marginal time saving stuff. You, it make, allows, it, it you make it like two, three, four more people across the line of political appointees, right. where those be on the executive branch or judicial branch. But like, it's not a game changer. It moves the vote pivot such that one person can vote no on things. Like, I mean, there are definitely like yeah, advantages, say, right? right? Yeah. yeah. I, um, there are advantages to it. And you know, the, the, I mean, Harris had, you know, tie-breaking votes on two pieces of, le of legislation, obviously the two pieces that came up under reconciliation instructions, um, but she's, you know, helped a lot of different judges go forward, too. You know, you have a lot of different tie-breaking votes for her for that. I don't know if it's, if the number is 25 or a couple more, a couple less. I did not write that down for this podcast. Um, freeze up her schedule to get down to the border, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, you're able to obstruct those. It makes the process faster, which means you can get a couple more folks, which is important for a position like a judge. It also means that you can subpoena people. And under, you know, if you have a power-sharing agreement, most committees have, uh, need to have a majority vote to issue a subpoena. And without a subpoena, you can't do, like, significant investigations. So but the question is, will the Senate, will will the Senate in issue is a single subpoena have, like, dueling, of the administration? Dueling banjos of, like, investigations between the Senate and the House. I think that's unlikely to be have a loud Senate banjo because they are, you know, historically far more bipartisan. But it gives them the tools to be able to do some of that if they want to. In, in one major case where they could do this, right? January 6th, though. Mm -hmm. Trump tax return. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the one that the House has for now. They're going to have to. They're going to give that up. They're going to. They're not. And they're going to try to figure out how to play it. And the question is now, with a fifty-one forty-nine in the Senate, all of a sudden, Wyden can pick it up if he right. wants to. Yeah, right. And keep a little bit of yeah. that burning in the background. Whereas with 50 50, they could and it would a, all go away. Here's a funny game I was playing. Imagine the Senate had been going to the Republicans, as a lot of people expected. How many judges would they have processed between Election Day and January 3rd? Okay. <laughs> Pick your number. What date do we get to that many judges going forward now? How long does it take them to do all the judges they would have done right now? I think it's probably more than six months. It might be more than a year. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and so they'll get more judges in the end, but they, they would have got a boatload of judges these last couple months had they lost the Senate. So it's not going to be as much as it seems. Yeah, um, but but they have another bite at that apple, especially depending on how the presidential election. Yeah, goes. I mean they got time, yeah, right? Yeah, of course they So in, in, no, in, but also it's just like we've got party priorities in the omnibus that you then take that political bandwidth and you shove that into that, right? Like, so whether that's the electoral yeah, count yeah. act, whether that's literally any ver variety of like greater aid to parents that once was the, gr the dream of an expanded child tax credit and now has been winnowed down to like an anemic version of that. Um, you know, like the, the, the bandwidth has just been put, put towards other things, but we will get more judges. In front of the show, Colleen Shogun has not been confirmed by the Senate yet. And, uh, I'm sure Colleen Shogun sure is the she, nominee for the architect of the United States. I'm sure she is happy as they nominee the Biden administration that Democrats have controlled the Senate. But I'm sure a little bit of her is annoyed <laughs> <laughs> that her nomination would have been forthwith. Yeah. <laughs> and they lost control of the Senate. And yeah. now it's going to be sometime in the next two years. Yeah, Colleen Shogun's a friend of the pod. She was on one of our podcasts. It was yeah, episodes, podcast. like way back. Um, talking about in your... But, when, when but, she but she's been nominated for like the worst job in government, as far as I'm concerned, right now, being head of the National Archives. When you're dealing with a president who's a former president who seems to be hiding documents, yeah. and it's and it's become political. This is the thing where it's like, okay, let's take care of the original Constitution and maybe an original copy of the Declaration. Now it's become political, and it's kind of crazy. So it's also an example of just how something that is traditionally not partisan or political right. or controversial at all, right. like this position, but also like Colleen herself. Like, have all of a sudden become, like, caught up in different political crosswinds. This is, like, literally if you are going to be, like, the director of the zoo and all of a sudden it was, like, the key thing <laughs> right. in national politics. That, that happens, though, sometimes, right? I mean, like, <laughs> it's always, like, weird things. You'll be, like, reading history be like, the doorkeeper? Like, what was wrong with the doorkeeper? And, like, out of context, you're like, what the hell does any of this mean? It's like, we're going to be talking about, like, 50 years from now, there's going to be, like, 
who cares about the archivist? We're like, oh, let me tell you. Right? <laughs> it's like, what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So it's, we keep saying 5149, but it's really... Oh, God, you want to talk about cinema? Well, it's kind of have to talk about Let's it. Let's talk about the difference the cinema makes. None. All right, moving forward. Okay, 5491 <laughs> doesn't make a difference? No, I, I mean, because, again, she's still... Er, She's still caucusing She's with still the Democrats, caucusing with them, right? So, right. like, it's it's literally a cosmetic change, and once you see that, the fact that she's not really independent and is still going to be voting with Democrats on organizational matters, yeah. you understand that's totally electoral because she was facing a primary challenge from right. A, right. Uh, a liberal right. Democrat from Arizona named Ruben Gallego, um, who's still probably going to run against her. Um, it might be a three-way race. Uh, can you imagine the? Kirsten Sinema, Ruben Gallego, Kari Lake, Senate, <laughs> Senate election. Oh you say Senator Lake. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, yeah. you'd say um, Senator Lake at the end of that. It, maybe, maybe not. I don't know what's going to happen with that. It, I mean, this is all pending and it goes on. But Senator will finish third, you know that. It, 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 it's going to be uh, a very, very interesting to watch. Like, structurally, what does it do? Nothing. She's going to keep all of her subcommittee assignments, which is just a big tell, right? If you're keeping right. all of your subcommittee gavels, you're doing all the organizational stuff with Democrats. Because if you were not doing all the organizational stuff, the people who are Democrats are going to be angry that a non-Democrat is chairing their panel. Um, so it doesn't change a whole lot, but it is interesting that that's, that's how she sees her path forward in Arizona, a state that's been electing Democrats pretty regularly in the last two years. Small, small sample size. Fine, regular. Yeah, but it's not been going that direction. Um, but uh, she, sees, she sees her path forward. She's been doing that, but... Yeah, I wanted to make a right. definition of the word is is, but like that's such an outdated joke at this point, it doesn't even make any sense. But it, it is interesting um, that she sees her her future as an independent. If she's gonna have so, it. so what do we do? We see much happening in the Senate. Do we see much different happening? Sure. I mean, we're going to have a huge change again for me. Things I care about in appropriations. You're going to have a new chair, a new ranking member uh, for the first time. You would care about that. I would care about that. <laughs> For the first time, the four corners, the tops in the House That's and right. the Senate, are all going to be women. That's right. Um, and I'm hopeful that that will bring compromise better. Because Susan Collins, Patty Murray, Kay Granger, and Rosa DeLora. Well, yeah. they're all people with working relationships who are notable for compromise, so the gender is a historical note. Of, of a historical note. You know, and that's that's something that's that's interesting because I would not have said that about Delora before right. she took the chairmanship. Right, and then chair she turned into that. Person. And then she turned into right. her. Yeah, right? yeah, she turned out to be a very savvy chair, a very savvy operator in yeah. terms of all the stuff she had to balance. It's been, I mean, she's really taken steps back on some of her more progressive stances, yep. right? And uh, she's played the policy. But she still has purple hair, right? She's still got purple hair, right? She's still. But these are four serious legislators who yeah. do like getting to results, and so. I do think that I do think that's correct. I mean, they still have to drag along um, caucuses that may not like it. I, well, talk to Shelby about that. Well, and Deloro came up with Pelosi and like was part of like a cohort of a small number of friends who like understood yeah. getting stuff done. You know, with Nita Lowy being the third exactly, musketeer. Exactly, exactly. That's what it. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. Who was just appropes? You know, who right. whose appropriations chair shoes Deloro filled? Oh. So. Well, I think what's going to happen in the Senate is, like, by it, by no fault of its own, it's going to become the center of the political world in the U.S. in terms of policymaking and negotiating. Um, the House will have no working or operating majority. Right? Yes. Um, Republicans will not be able to pass things like spending bills or debt ceilings because they haven't been able to do that for a decade now. Terrifying. But this is a super small majority with a lot of frac uh, factions within it. And it's going to be very difficult whether that's Speaker McCarthy or Speaker whomever um, to manage the Republicans to, to do much. Um, and so what's going to end up happening is that all of these sort of negotiations that have been sort of you know, bicameral in nature are suddenly going to be thrust upon the Senate and then forced upon the House. Um, and been, there's been some of that dynamic this Congress as well, um, but it's going to become even more pronounced with a majority that just simply won't be able to do routine stuff. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they negotiate that and how the Senate works around it. Because it's going to be, again, it's going to be a Senate and a President sort of dynamic with the House playing tag along. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Also, like, it's in everybody's interest to pass this omnibus bill. I realize that McCarthy, for political reasons, is saying, I'm not going to vote for this because he's still in this imperiled speakership race. Um, and Granger, as, you know, ranking member of a probes, has begged off of it, um, as you pointed out earlier. Uh, but... Like, can you imagine 
this go like them kicking the can down the road and them trying to negotiate anything at the beginning of the next Congress with the dynamics that Josh so ably just described, like complete. And the Senate isn't kumbaya either in the Republican caucus. I mean, sure. McConnell actually had a real push against him for the first time. In a was while. it real? Or ten was, votes? Or was it something else? He, he lost. He lost ten votes. He did. I mean, I mean that's that's not. He, not but it's been acclamation in the past. Like Rick Scott's challenge to, to oh, McConnell was dumb. weird. Was weird, right? Damn I mean, dumb. like here's a guy who presided over a really bad Senate result, who then challenged the leader. Like, I mean, just, like, the timing of it is weird. And basically, the only thing you can really conclude from that is that Senator Scott is running for something else other than Senate leader. Because right. we need three um, nominees for Florida right. for president. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole ton of sense. Well, and that was his messaging about, you know, a potential threat uh, to you know, McConnell, like, going into the midterm. And then we had the midterm results, which should have said to him, hey, maybe don't. And he went ahead and he did it anyway. So, yeah, there's that. And it's these former members of the House who were over there, too, sometimes, that, that caused some of these issues. So it'll be interesting to see how it ultimately plays out. Well, All right. I, I think my favorite part about this whole, like, omnibus thing that we were just talking about was, was uh, <laughs> Ranking Member Shelby's comment about it. It's like, because Kevin McCarthy came out on record saying that he was against the omnibus, and they asked Senator Shelby what he thought about that. Like, look, he's running for speaker over there. They got to say some wacky crap. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like totally offhanded. Like he's retiring. <laughs> he gets to be honest. But it's also just him being him, right? right. It's like, I'm not sure I can think of a better example of the vote no hope yes caucus than McCarthy right now on the omnibus. Right. right? Like the last thing McCarthy wants. Because they have to battle out the omnibus in January is the first thing he does when he takes office. Because ultimately, what that would mean would be gathering up Democratic votes to shove through a compromise that maybe a majority of his conference even want. Uh, so he absolutely wants this omnibus to pass. He just well, can't what, say it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're correct procedurally. But in practice, I'll add this to it, we definitely would have a shutdown because this would be a total cluster. I'm not sure. I, I think that's possible. Yeah. It depends where McCarthy falls. Well, yeah, maybe so. Here's the interesting shutdown scenario, right? All right? We do a continuing resolution to January the 10th, right? Whatever, give me a little bit of time. And then we don't have a speaker. Yeah. Because <laughs> what happens when you actually don't have a speaker? Well, the Nothing next thing happens. you don't have is rules. No, you don't have anything. If you don't have yeah, rules, yeah. you don't have committees. Yeah. You, have committees. You, got, you, you got the clerk. Legislation. You, you can't, can't, you can't get the legislation. I mean, you can't even get the legislation. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's way small. Um, but it's, oh, it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of fun. Hey, well, what's get what's put... the anomaly historically? Isn't it like 1927 is a series of different speakers' ballots? Uh, that was 23. 23. 23, okay. But 23 is another, a very... Another statistic I didn't look well, up. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at good. Josh right now. 23 is a buy-up going wrong. Where right. essentially Gillette thinks they're bluffing, and they're not bluffing, and they block him for eight ballots, and he just gives in and gives them the buy-up they wanted. Right. Um, th- and that's plausibly where we are now. Um, but like 1849, 1855, and 1859 are much more like they don't know who has a majority. On right. The floor, that's true. Right. That, those are parties. Those yeah. are multi-party situations in flux. Twenty-three feels kind of like we have now. You just don't know if they want to be bought up ultimately. Well, the big difference is, like, you know, we now have an organizing caucus, right? And we have for the better part of 100-plus right. years. And since then, there have been very few floor dust-ups when right. it comes to speakership right. elections because you have a caucus, you vote for that person, and then you all go to the floor and you vote for the person you said you were going to vote for. Um, and that's been, it's been really, really rare, 23 being the exception, where you have people say, like, no, we're absolutely not going to do that until you do that. Now, the big difference between 23 and now, at least then, they were serious about their procedural yes. defense. They wanted a yeah. discharge petition. Well, we're not going anywhere until you give it to us, right? And there's the farm block, and they were all sorts of trouble, right? Um, they got read out of the party in the next Congress, too. Longworth's like, y'all aren't Republicans anymore, by the way. Yeah. No, um, I mean, that was for a long time the only thing you could do to get booted out of the party was vote right. against the Speaker, right? right. Like, there's well, nothing else you couldn't do. I mean, and, the, and you have Republicans right now who are looking at the five stands out and, like, kind of whispering, or maybe more than whispering, since they all seem to be talking to the press as well. Um, another fun modern dynamic um, that, like you know, if these these folks really deny McCarthy like a speakership or, or cause enough problems, like maybe they shouldn't get seats on committees. Like is like the that's what Boehner did, right? He knocked like, two guys off. He kicked off. He kicked that's four a people. That was, that was different. That's right? different. So the twenty in twenty thirteen, he kicked off uh, Holscamp, Webster, not Webster, Holscamp, um, 
uh, Amash, uh, the two others that were uh, well, oh, a pain in the butt. The, and then in 2015, Nugent, yeah, Nugent Webster voted yeah. against Speaker Boehner. Right. Um, he wrote him off the rules. And then he wrote him off the rules committee. The rules committee, which is bananas. Well, so, one, thing going, one thing going on here is that party discipline is in a strange spot because in one sense you think, well, you know, we're polarized. We'd have more party discipline about this stuff. But, you know, in the 60s when you could get the segregationists and sort of like the civil rights activists to both vote for the same speaker, Part of the reason they did that is because the rules were decentralized and the speaker wasn't that powerful. Yes. Right? right. Now the speaker is so much more powerful that, you know, in some sense, it, there is a substantive matter here where if you disagree with the speaker's wing of the party, like, you don't have the recourse to the protection of the committee system. You don't have these sort of other veto points in the system. And so I, I can see why the parties are fracturing more. It's still amazing in the last 10 years, both sides, Democrats and Republicans, how many people just vote against the speaker um, and don't expect to be punished for it and aren't punished for it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic. Um, because, uh, like you were, where was I going to go with that? I don't know, but what I'm going to say It was going to be good. <laughs> it was going to be good. Brilliant comments. Right. Right. Well, one thing we yeah. can know is that every hundred years there'll be a speakership dust up. Right? Yes. 1923, to 2023, it's a hard, those were around for hundred I think Josh's larger point of like, do these folks want concessions or do they want to be oppositional for the sake of being oppositional is kind of a larger thing to watch as we go into the next Congress. And I think that's true of a lot of different things. Uh, the things that the thing that I'm particularly worried about is the debt ceiling, um, uh, because that is something extraordinarily dangerous to play with. Um, but fits under that. I think that's the most important item under that larger question. And so we will see whether or not these members of uh, there are a small but consequential number of members of Congress who really want to be the Batman villain, or whether they can be bought by concession. And the other side of that coin, though, is that really it's a question of how the leaders feel. Because we're going to have the same dynamic we had with Boehner, where there's plenty of votes to raise the debt ceiling. There's plenty of votes to pass appropriations bills. The problem is you've got to get a lot of them from the other party. right? And so what Boehner did, typically, was he'd go get 120 Democrats to vote for it, 100 Republicans, and then 100 and some Republicans in his caucus would vote against it. And like you can pass the compromises that way, and Boehner would try, but it doesn't help you maintain your speakership. This and so that's the question right. for McCarthy. Like, yeah. How willing are you to put your own job on the line in order to do these things you know you have to do? Right. And that's where the, that's where the rubber hits the and this last is, point. And this is where it comes down to the fact that whatever McCarthy does decide to do is, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch. But what he should want is less power. In this, in this type of scenario, you don't want to be the only real procedural decision maker in the House. You want others to have points of contention and be able to force an issue and, and force a compromise. You shouldn't want to be that powerful. Now, speakers don't work that way, neither does human nature, so it's not going to happen. But you should want to be weaker as a leader of this kind of faction or theory majority. Yeah. All right, we're uh, over 50 minutes in. It's time, as, as, as Matt will tell you, people stopped listening seven minutes ago. Um, so um, we didn't even chance to touch on the fact that the Democrats have all brand new leadership in the House. We will do that. Um, at the next podcast that we get going, um, hopefully in a handful of weeks. So thank you all for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>